Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Joy Love. I'm your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. Today, we are recording episode 67. Before I introduce tonight's guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity, and it's available on Amazon. The subtitle of my book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And after I published my book in 2020, I got a lot of messages from people around the world telling me that they are also a victim of child sex abuse, domestic violence, bullying, homelessness. I felt very compelled after I published my book to create a platform where we can talk about adversity and destigmatize difficult talks. And I've been so grateful since the beginning of this podcast. I've had so many wonderful guests from all over the world coming to this platform sharing the adversities, but not only that, tools that they used to overcome and the gift that came from it. So tonight, we have a guest from Oklahoma, and his name is Steve Lovelace. Hi, Steve. Hi, Jerry. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share my adversity with you. And I just want to tell you, I love the title of the book because what I've come to understand and what you'll come to understand about me is that there are many gifts from adversity, but you have to look for them. Uh, and so I just, I love the title. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. So before we begin our podcast, can you please introduce yourself and what you do? And if you have a website or social media that you want to promote and where are you coming in from? Sure. Uh, I live in Edmond, Oklahoma, which is right in the heart of the United States, uh, where I-35 meets I-40. We're a crossroads to the world. And um, I'm a father of two boys, Jackson and Barron, uh, 17 and 15. One's a junior in high school. The other is a freshman in high school. And my social media, about the only thing I really engage with is Instagram and it's SP Lovelace. Uh, at, at, on Instagram at SP Lovelace, and you know, welcome people to follow my journey as I post things, which you know I do periodically, and and will more so in the future. Uh, as far as my background goes, I was uh, an X-ray technician or technologist, rather. Uh, I shot X-rays for many, many years in the hospital and clinical setting before moving into sales. Worked for GE, Toshiba, Fuji, a lot of the big medical companies uh, before I was forced to retire due to an unfortunate disease, which I'll allude to here later as well. Uh, but right now I'm just, uh, I represent USA Triathlon Foundation and I'm out promoting the benefits of triathlon. And again, we'll see how that ties into my story here shortly. Uh, but that's just me. I, I'm just a pretty simple back woods guy in Oklahoma. So nothing special about me, really. Well, thank you so much for sharing your introduction. I'm just curious, you shared with me by email. How did you find out about this podcast? What <laughs> I went on to, um, I forget what the website is, Beanpod or something along that uh, pod bean or and I was researching uplifting shows and yours came across and, and I did my research and I reached out to you and we connected and, you know, here we are. It's a very small world when you can find these connections and you have such a tie to it from a, a personal standpoint, uh, you know, with the adversity and the things that you've been through and the things that I've been through personally. Uh, and we've come out the other side so much better when so many people don't have that opportunity. Uh, but I found your your podcast. It seemed very uplifting. You've done many episodes. I've listened to several. And, uh, you know, I just I'm just thrilled to be here to tell you my story. Steve, I just want to before we move on to the uh, question, I just want to thank you so much. This means so much to me. 
because I think you mentioned about Wayne Forest story, New Zealand. Um, he's in uh, wheelchair, and it's so interesting that before this year, I wanted to do this show, but I wasn't sure how and how many guests will come to the show, and but I wanted to do it. So January first, I announced I'm gonna do this, and then one of my friend Deidre came for the first. Uh, episode that she survived two active gun shooting, which I had no idea that she did. Wow. So then it started more and more. And then Wayne came from New Zealand. He's my first guest from New Zealand. And you reached out to me and I was telling my family, wow, you never know power of telling story and you never know who is listening to our conversation tonight as well so i just want to thank you for finding me finding this podcast and willing to share your story oh absolutely and, and you know if, if anything comes out of this tonight if we touch one person with your story and my story i truly feel that makes a difference and i and i say that with you know all heart and humility uh because that's really the mission when you go through this is to let other people know that there's light at the end of the tunnel and you can improve yourself and you have to look for the good things but you can find them. They're out there. They're nuggets. You got to dig and you got to work hard, but you'll find them. And, and we're two of those people that can testify to that, too. So, Absolutely. So, Steve, let's dive into the first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience what was your adversity? Yeah. Okay, I laugh. I laugh as a as kind of a coping mechanism. A um, couple of couple of things. The first thing that happened to me, and, and they're, they're paired because they're intertwined. Uh, my father abandoned our family when I was four years old. <clears throat> he was not the nicest of guys. He had his hangups and his problems, and it was good that he left. But still, growing up without you know a father uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a stigma attached to it. And, and I carried that around for many, many years. Uh, but luckily, I had a very strong mother. Uh, like, I, you know, I've seen through your posts and through your videos uh, that you're very in tune with your children. And, and that's very important because my mom made a huge difference for me. Uh, she gave me a lot of my uh, my moral compass, my you know right from wrong. And all that strength helped me <laughs> for the biggest adversity that I would face when I was 20 years old, which was I was cutting firewood um in a remote area in wagner oklahoma friend and i cut on this large tree and it split in half and if i can give you a visual these are the leaves and the branches and as we're cutting the tree falls over and it forms a t and then eventually my friend's cutting and the the t closes up so i had two halves of the tree one on my front and one on my back pinning me to the ground knocked me unconscious when I came to and <laughs> I realized that I couldn't feel my legs, I was stuck in this tree in the middle of nowhere. And I was now paralyzed as a 20 year old college student. I didn't freak out. My friend was still there. He was helping me trying to get out of this tree. He started a chainsaw, started to cut me out. The chainsaw got stuck. He ended up having to go to the truck that we had driven to the wheat field. The truck flooded. Now, keep in mind, we're in the middle of the country, and he's about three miles away from the nearest rel or, uh, nearest neighbor, basically. It's all farmland. He goes across the street. There was one house across the street, but nobody was home. So he makes his way towards my uncle's, which was about three miles away gets a farmhand, the farmhand comes, they end up cutting me out. It took two hours before I was extricated and I was taken to a hospital. It was there that I learned that my face, my frontal bone was crushed, my mandible was crushed, the roof of my mouth was split open, my left wrist was crushed, my heart was bruised, and three vertebrae in my lower back, my lumbar vertebrae, basically exploded when this tree hit me from front to back. Luckily, they, well, they told me that I wasn't, bless you. <laughs> they told me that I was uh, probably never going to walk again. But at that point, I told them back, hey, <laughs> I'm walking out of this hospital. I may not have said it with that much conviction, 
but I did say that I was going to walk out of the hospital after three and a half months. I took four steps on my own with crutches. I kept my word. I walked out of the hospital, went into a rehab center for another three and a half months and basically was set on my own to recover. And the way that I did this basically leads into your next question. So if you want to go ahead and ask that, I will segue into the next portion of my story. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Before we go to another question, I want to dissect a little bit more of mm -hmm. what you were feeling when you were 20. I know the accident, um, but thank you so much for sharing your story. And it's really unbelievable that you were determined to walk. But do you remember the feeling when the tree came and then do you have any conscious memory of, oh my gosh, what's going on and devastation or fear? Can you recall that? Oh yeah. Well, I, I recall just before the tree hit me and just after the tree hit me when I woke up and, and I was pinned in it, there's maybe a four second window that has been clipped from my memory. It's like as if you took a film and you just cut out a section, a couple of minutes of film and that whole period of time is gone. I can't remember any of the trauma. And that's the beautiful uh, wonder of the brain is that, it prevents you from that significant trauma because I can't imagine living over and over that tree coming at me and hitting me so violently and so forcefully and then throwing me to the ground all the while crushing all these bones waiting for me to feel it. So with that section of time gone, I, when I woke up in the tree, the first thing I remember is, is pulling my head up from between the sides of the tree because it had impacted me from, the left side of my head to the right side of my head. And I remember looking up and it's almost like a cartoon. You're seeing stars just going everywhere. And then eventually I start seeing branches move and I, and I start seeing leaves flowing and I feel the breeze and I'm like, Oh, it's fall in Oklahoma. And I was cutting firewood and that's when I happened to look down and I see this massive tree in front of me and I can't move. Eventually I, I make my hands, I make my way down to my legs to make sure that my legs are okay and I can't feel them. And it was at that point that I realized that I was paralyzed, uh, whether it be, you know, permanently or temporarily at that point, I did not know. And I told my friend, Hey, I can't feel my legs. And he's like, we're, we're going to work on this. Um, but that's really all that I remember. And then everything else from that point when my friend left to go get help to when he got back, I was in and out of consciousness because I was going into shock, uh, which, you know, for the trauma that I had just sustained. And, and you know, incidentally, they gave me a 50-50 chance of living uh, for the first night because of my bruised heart. They didn't know what was going to happen because of the blunt force impact that I had sustained. And so that was a big worry. Um, but I remember bits and pieces, you know, getting to the hospital. <laughs> I remember being in the ER of the small hospital. I got transferred from a small town hospital in Wagner to Tulsa. And they were cutting my jeans off. And I was like, hey, <laughs> these are new jeans. Don't cut, don't cut them. And they're like, please, you got bigger issues going on than a $20 pair of jeans. So. <laughs> There's bits and pieces that I remember, some funny, and I can always find the humor in anything, to be honest with you, because I, I like to laugh at life instead of crying. Uh, we've all shed enough tears, you know, in our years. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Steve. And then when you went to the hospital, um, did doctor tell you that you're not going to walk? You, you mentioned that like at 20 years old, like how did you feel for that kind of comment? You know, when you're 20 years old, you're pretty much bulletproof, which we thought we were when we were cutting firewood. We knew nothing about cutting firewood, yet we took it on because, hey, this doesn't look too difficult. You know, when they told me it was, I don't remember the exact moment or, you know, the exact thing that I was feeling, but I, I've never been one where you could tell me much of anything. <laughs> I have to learn it for myself or I have to know it for a fact. 
And that was probably one of the better times for that to actually take front because if, if I would have given in at that point and if I would have been a weak, had a weak constitution or a weak mental attitude, I'm afraid that that would have taken me down a whole different path through my rehabilitation and my recovery. And then in the life that I had beyond that, because if you look at po for positivity in life, you'll find it. If you look for negativity, you'll find plenty and, and more so. So I, I tend to look for the glass to be half full versus half empty. And when they told me, I'm just like, I'm not having any of this. I'm walking out of this hospital and I stuck to my guns and I worked so hard through my therapy in the hospital. And most of it was done in the bed because I was immobile for <laughs> almost two months. I don't think I moved except left to right. And that was just to put a pillow underneath me. So, yeah. How did you train yourself from that paralyzed, you know, legs and the doctor's beliefs and it, how you said the training was very hard. And I just saw, I don't know if you saw Gigi and Nate, um, a movie about a boy who had meningitis and then became um, wheelchair bond at 18. And it's okay. based on the story. And then they had service animal, which is Capucha, a monkey who helped oh. Physical yes. <laughs> and then he's able, but his acting was just so real. And then he was trying to hold the ball, but it was just so hard. So, mm -hmm. do you remember those physical therapy that you said you had in bed? How painful was it from like out of pain out of one to ten? How did you describe our audience? Oh, it was it was beyond ten, <laughs> and they didn't really start my therapy until they knew that my back was fused, which was maybe eight weeks after I'd entered the hospital. And we started with doing leg lifts and my leg would go about five degrees from the hip to my foot. The therapist would, would cradle my leg and just lift it. And it was so, so excruciating because at that point I was getting feeling back into my legs that, essentially what had happened was there was so much swelling around my spine that it cut off the, the feeling to my spinal cord. Now that's a lot of pressure to put around a spinal cord to eliminate all the feeling. And when my feelings started coming back, it was just, at first it started with a toe and then it, you know, I started feeling my foot. It just kind of worked its way up my legs from my recollection it was excruciatingly painful. I was on morphine. They would inject it into my muscles. And I mean, morphine is a horrible drug. But I will say that I learned to time my pain shots right before I knew my therapy session would be coming in because I could get through more therapy. And at that point, I wasn't really worried about them stretching my legs too much and, and pulling a muscle. I had bigger issues going on. I just wanted to be able to stretch that leg eventually and knowing that it was going to be so painful when they came in, I, I needed that, you know, little bit of boost from uh, a medicinal standpoint. So this is about three and a half months that you were in the hospital training and you went to a different facility after. Mm -hmm. And then what happened during that different facility? I was, uh, I had a relapse at some point. My pain got so bad. They put me back in the hospital temporarily, uh, under observation. They couldn't figure out what was going on. We never figured out what happened, but when I was released from the hospital, I could not sit up. The pain was still so excruciating in my back that I couldn't sit up. So they put me on a belly cart and I don't know. <laughs> I, there are probably maybe 20 people in the world that knows what a belly cart is. And it's essentially a wheelchair that you lay down on, on your stomach. You have the same wheels that you push and it, but it, it's your whole body. It's like land surfing almost, you know, laying on your, on your stomach. And I took to that thing in the rehab center. I was a madman once I, I got, through a lot of the pain and, and laying down, my pain was gone and I would be racing up and down the halls. They got so mad at me. I learned how to do a wheelie 
with it. Oh, gee. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't hold it, trust me. But I was able to do a wheelie with it. And they're like, Mr. Lovelace, you have got to stop or you're going to end up back in the hospital. And I'm like, I just, I'm ready to get on with my life. And this is part of it is pushing myself and finding new limits, finding new ways to, uh, to excel and new things to do that, you know, I could prove to myself that I'm a whole individual again. I'm not this guy that's going to be defined by this accident. I'm going to be the same guy that I was before plus the accident. That's incredible, Steve. I just want to mention that um, the pain level, that everybody's pain level is different. And some people tolerate the pain better than the other. Mm -hmm. um, when you're having this excruciating pain, like how bad was it? it was it like you can't just scream or were you screaming or like and especially when you're recovering and start to feel and then without a med without medication like how bad was it like can you explain a little bit more like because most of us wouldn't maybe go through that kind of exclusive accent and pain yeah you know it was i prayed a lot <laughs> i mean when I got at, at my worst points, I was just like, God, you've got to stop the pain. I mean, it's just excruciating. Morphine would only knock me out. And eventually during my recovery, morphine had been stopped and they moved me on to just a slew of pills that did help. But it took a while for them to work in. And the sad thing about pain is it's easier to keep it at bay with medication on a regular basis than it is to wait till it gets so bad that you take something and then you're expecting this miracle pill to just end the pain. And it, it doesn't really work like that. And I've been in pain since I was 20 on a daily basis. But the pain that I, I had gone through then was just to the point where, you know, I couldn't get up and, and walk it off. I, I couldn't take a pill that was ever going to get rid of it. I Basically, I, I knew that I just had to survive it. So I, I don't know that calling it maybe compartmentalizing and, and putting the pain over here. Well, I, I thought about something over there, but I, I still felt the pain. It, it always became a game of distraction, um, trying to find something that would take my mind off the pain. But, you know, when <laughs> when you're in pain, it's very hard to do that. But I, I look at it as if you do something long enough, except focus on the pain, it's like wearing a hat. You put a hat on event, uh, at the first, you can feel the hat. Then eventually you forget, hey, where's my hat? Well, it's on your head. You become desensitized to it. And that's the way that pain worked for me is that I could focus on a TV show or I would put a, a Walkman on and I would focus on a song, anything to take my mind off the pain. But you couldn't get away from it. You just had to learn how to tolerate it, which I did. And I, and I still do, to be honest with you. Uh, I've got a very high pain tolerance. <laughs> I've always said that if I needed to draw blood and, and they couldn't do it, I could probably do it myself because it's just, it's not that much of a painful thing to me. And uh, the, the one guy that, that I would like to reference with regard to pain is a guy named Aaron, Rals Aaron Ralston. He's the gentleman that got stuck in the boulder as he was uh, going through the canyon, ended up having to cut his own arm off to save his life. And he did this with a dull Leatherman tool. And the guy's just a beast as far as uh, pain gurus go. But that happened way after me. But I like to think that if the same thing happened to me, you know, and it was, it was my arm or my life, I could definitely choose my life for sure. That is unimaginable oh yeah so steve um i did not mention in this book um i had this really really bad pain um i mean i might have so basically my daughter um when she was in my body i had a pinched nerve on january 1st and i never felt 
this much of pain from pinched nerve, which it's almost like your arm is burning in the fire. Yes. So and I had con contraction pain with my son, and I tore it till like six centimeter dilated, which is very rare. And I'm pretty strong. But this one, pinched nerve, I was just crying like baby. But because I was pregnant, I didn't want to take any pain painkiller. Right. Because I didn't, I didn't know the effect for my daughter. I took the pain. It was so bad. I took one, <laughs> one painkiller. But then when I delivered her, I had a resident try my epidural, which didn't work for 45 minutes. And then they ended up having a C-section. And four days after, my daughter was um, out from the C-section. I almost died because uh, apparently they poked a hole on my spinal cord and my spinal bullet leaked and I was dying. Uh, and um, they took my blood from my arm and injected back to my spinal cord, which was another huge pain. And when I came home, after they released me, I don't know why they released me so quickly after all of this, I had another excruciating pain from waist down and they thought I had a black clot. So they sent me back to the hospital mm -hmm. and it was just so bad. And every time, even from bed to the crib, I'm trying to pick my daughter up. I just could not do it. It was just so excruciating. And I never felt this burning fire pain in my life, which to describe, it was just somebody torching your legs or arms. And then it was like burning from inside. Right. Out. And I don't know, like, I didn't know how to save myself from this pain. And that was maybe one, two weeks, but I can't imagine doing that for three months, like six months. I, I just can't imagine that long of pain. You know, I, <laughs> I don't want to segue, but I, I, I definitely want to add to what you just told me because I've got a disease called arachnoiditis, which is swelling of the arachnoid tissue that surrounds the spinal cord. Um, the majority of people that have this disease, they either don't know about it or they, they do know about it because of the exact pain that you're talking about are women. And the majority of the women that get it are because of epidurals. You've had an epidural. They re-injected blood cells. It, it's the worst, most painful disease in the world. And it's, it, it's really sad that it happens to more mothers during childbirth. They come out of childbirth. Some are paralyzed because of the disease. Some are, are in excruciating pain. Uh, because of the, of the disease, that burning sensation or electrical, almost like ants crawling on you and hot water going down your leg. I mean, it's just all kinds of sensations, but I pray you don't have it. Um, but it sounds like you had a, an episode with it. Um, just if, and the only reason I say this is if you start to feel a, a tingle in a toe, uh, because where they give the epidurals, you're going to feel it in your pinky toe and, and the couple of toes to the left of it or, or to the to the middle. And you'll feel that same kind of pain, that same kind of tingle. It's if you go to a doctor, if you have that, it's arachnoiditis. It's very difficult to diagnose. It's very rare um, because it's underdiagnosed. Uh, but I just want you to be aware of that because it's. I, I pray you don't have it. I really do. It's terrible. Look it up because it, it's you'll find it's one of the most nasty diseases that there is. And you said you have it, you don't. Oh yeah, yeah. See, I I have it because I've had trauma, which causes it, uh, whether it be a, a physical trauma or a medical trauma, which is to say a, an epidural or a myelogram. Uh, it can be caused by meningitis and it can all be also be caused by a spinal fluid leak. I've had all those. Uh, so 
we don't know what caused mine. We just know that, that I have it in, in my particular case, it's slowly paralyzing me below the waist because the disease process is the arachnoid tissue swells and it constricts around the spinal cord and the blood supply. And when you cut off the blood supply to the spinal cord, any, any part of it, it's basically going to die. I mean, it needs that blood supply to live. And then so in my case, again, it's, it's slowly paralyzing me below the waist. But, you know, again, I, I look for the good in things. And the good in this is that now I have, well, I, I say a, sort of a platform for this disease so that I can bring attention to it because nobody's doing research for it. Nobody really cares about it because the majority of people with this disease are seen as drug seekers. Um, they're seen as, oh, it's a failed back syndrome and they just don't want to work or they don't want to do this. That's not the case. Uh, and, you know, there's a, a few physicians out there that are actually banging the drum and, and really telling the truth about this disease. And it's my hope with my story that, uh, you know, we'll get to again in, in a bit here that uh, I can get attention so that we can do some research. And we do know that there are a lot of people out there suffering with this disease. And it, I'm lucky enough that I, I've been on all the medications, uh, all the pain medications, and I'm on none now. I do no pain medication. I have a whole different regime that I do, but it doesn't work for everybody. I know that. Um, but it does work for me. And I I do it, you know, with all my passion. Can you spell the disease um, so I can just put it on the comment? Sure. Uh, a oh, on the comments on the yeah, website? I'm, I'm right now. No, no. So it's um, if you can spell out. Oh, A R A. A R A. C H. C H. N O I. N O I. D I T. I S arachnoiditis. It sounds like a Spider-Man's disease, you know, the arachnid. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Arachnoiditis. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's all negative. Trust me. There's no positive about this disease. It's all, all negative. Uh, but it, you know, the negativity is what you make of it. And I'm turning a negative into a positive, trying to tell my story and it doesn't all focus on arachnoiditis, but it is a big part of it now. So, so how did you, when, how old were you when you were diagnosed with arachnoiditis? 2014. Um, my pain started in, in one toe. It's almost like Michael J. Fox's story where he had a tremor in his pinky when he got Parkinson's, right? And then it just slowly migrated to his body. Mine started in my little toe. Then it moved to the middle of my foot, then the back of my leg, and it got so bad. I, at the time, I was traveling cross-country in planes, and when I would get on a plane, and you know how uncomfortable plane seats are. Commercial plane seats are horrible. Even in first class, they're not that comfortable. So I started getting this pain. I couldn't wear a shoe. I'd have to take my shoe off immediately when I sat down because just the pressure of the shoe on my foot was so excruciating. It felt as if somebody was stabbing me constantly with an ice pick. It was so horrible. And I just couldn't endure this pain anymore. And I, I, I couldn't sleep. That's the biggest problem that I face is that when I do try to go to sleep, the pain exacerbates. It's worse when I lay down than it is when I sit and comparatively when I stand. And I was losing so much sleep and sleeping is so important to the human body for healing and recovery. Uh, it just, it forced me into retirement and it forced me onto all these pills and all these mechanisms to try to, you know, every doctor thinks or every pain doctor thinks they can cure something with a pill. And <laughs> that's why I'm not a big fan of pain doctors. One of them told me that, Hey, we're going to keep throwing pills at you until we find something that works. And I just keep thinking, you're just making me into a drug addict, you know? And I was on so many pills, Valium, Neurontin, Gabapentin, um, Percocet, Lortab. I mean, you name a, a, a narcotic <laughs> and I was on it. And I quit all of them cold turkey because I found out that my family was more important than 
trying to deal with the pain that those pills, they weren't doing anything for the pain. So why take them? It barely numbed it. Uh, I, I was tough enough and strong enough and had such a high pain tolerance that I could endure it. It wasn't pleasant, but it was a choice that I made for my family and for myself. And, and I, I, I don't look back on it. I have good days, bad days and survival days, but you know, I have days and I, and they're not spent looking for pills or wanting pills in, in this climate that we have where they've made it so difficult for people that do need them. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing that. Before we dive into the second question, I have a quick question. So when you are going through this pain and then the right diagnosis, were you misdiagnosed? Were you uh, tossed around different doctors or did you seek another doctor when you didn't get the right diagnosis? How was the process for getting the correct diagnosis? My mother-in-law had been working with a neurologist and she says, I'm going to get you in to see this guy. He opened up his door. He worked me in very quickly. He said, let's get an MRI. And the first time he said, let's get an MRI, I was like, eh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I was for the first time, I was kind of afraid to hear what the diagnosis was because I didn't want another back surgery. I've had two and they were both horrific. Um, no, nothing bad against my surgeons. They were brilliant. But it's just going through the type of surgery that I went through was horrible because of the recovery. Um, so I, I dealt with it for maybe another nine months and, and I was getting no sleep. I was getting less sleep. I was in so much pain. I couldn't do my work. I was just becoming a, a different individual because of the pain. And I went back. He sent me to get an MRI. And luckily, I ran on to, I guess, the radiologist that read it, knew what he was looking for. Because I had all these symptoms um, that are very characteristic of this disease, uh, bladder issues. I had loss of function in my legs. I had loss of feeling in my legs. My balance was going. And this guy tied it all together and they did a good MR and he diagnosed me right off the bat. And this, <laughs> the sad thing is when I went in to see my neurologist and, and my wife, was with me at the time. And, um, this guy comes in and he just, he hangs his head and he shakes his head and he says, I'm so sorry. And I was like, okay, what are we expecting here? And then he told me about arachnoiditis and I was at the starting line of the, of the disease at that point, And I had no idea what I was in for, which was quite a roller coaster ride. But that's the most compassion I've ever seen from a physician when he came in there. And I mean, it was almost like he had tears in his eyes. And I asked him, how many cases have you seen in your career? He'd seen five, including me. So it's, again, it's very rare. He knew what he was looking for. He had been educated with it, thank God, because the majority of physicians that you say arachnoiditis, they'll either roll their eyes saying, oh, that's failed back syndrome, or they're like, trying to dissect it from a medical terminology point of view. Okay. Arachnoid, uh, itis, arachnoid inflammation. Okay. So what's so bad about that? Well, it's the spinal cord. So anything to do with the spinal cord affecting it is bad. And that's really kind of what it comes down to. Thank you so much for sharing that. The reason why I asked, because a lot of times when you have these questions and some doctors don't know they are uh, tossed around and then I'm very happy that you got to see the right doctor who had done his studies and researches and then was able to pinpoint what it was as yeah, a journalist as a journalist I've covered many stories of rare diseases as well and then the process of finding it sometimes is that itself is a nightmare mm -hmm. and you know, I have one friend whose son uh, couldn't speak, and then they thought he was autistic. It turned out this uh, very rare disease called Philip McDormand syndrome, which was at the time 18 years ago, only two, 300 diagnoses in the entire world. But luckily, wow. the doctor went to the conference and have heard of it, and it's a deletion of one chromosome, I think number 22, 
that is very rare. But now he's 18, and I think it's like 3,000 cases. So this is my background as a journalist of interviewing mm -hmm. people as well. Um, that sometimes these kind of diagnoses, as hard as it was, as compassionate the doctor was, getting the right answer sometimes can be very difficult. And then mm -hmm. now you found it, then you kind of mentally prepared or have more research and then, you know, going after it. So thank you so much for telling your story and answering my questions. And I want to move on to my second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome all these challenges. First, I want to dissect to the childhood abandonment. Mm -hmm. How do you, what kind of tools that you use to overcome that? <laughs> I was an angry young man until I was about 14 years old. I acted out, um, you know, I was horrible in school and I really didn't have any tools to be honest with you when I was that young. And that's, uh, that was kind of the, the times, I mean, this, we're talking about the sixties and the seventies and, you know, it's vastly different than it is now where, uh, you have parents researching all this stuff online about their kids and they figure out what's maybe going on they take them to a doctor and they work this out i was probably dealing with ptsd back in the day and just didn't know um so i guess the only real outlet that i had as a kid was physical activity i was in a lot of different sports um i played baseball i played basketball i played golf i ran track um I mean, it, it, if it was a physical sport, I liked to do it. Uh, my mom wouldn't let me play football. <laughs> she was afraid that I would get hurt. And we didn't have a whole lot of money growing up. We were, you know, I don't want to say poor, but we were probably right there. We struggled with meals at times. And I think that, you know, she didn't want to have another medical bill if I was to get my bell rung and have to go see a doctor, which I, I completely understand. And we don't, you know, I don't let my sons play football either. So, uh, and it's all because of the concussion issues, uh, which I, I've dealt with many of those myself. Uh, the first one, uh, I was young, but the biggest one was in the tree. I mean, you can't walk away with your head getting smashed like mine was and not have a concussion. And, uh, they are real, they change you and they affect you in so many ways. Definitely. So you used since, um, there's obviously not like these days, 2022, a lot of mental health talks uh, out there and the resources out there. Myself, the same situation. I was, you know, in the 80s, nobody talked about incest and sexual abuse. And I, I did not have PTSD until I was 22 when I came to America. Had I not to, had I not been in America, I don't know if I ever um, figured out why, you know. So anyways, right. let's move on to your accident and then the illness. What is the best tools that you used to overcome or dealing with? So this is the best part of the story. <laughs> this is the, the, the good that you see in the bad. So when I was released from the rehabilitation center, I started lifting weights when I could. And I mean, I had to relearn to walk and eventually I figured out, Hey, I want to run again. And I figured out how to run. Uh, I was lifting my weights and I started eventually running 10 Ks. I ran a couple of 10 Ks in 1985. So it was just about two and a half years after I'd been released from the hospital. And trust me, it took two and a half years to get to that point. There was a lot of work that had to be done. But there was one afternoon in 85, I was watching TV and I came across ABC's Wide World of Sports replaying the 1985 Hawaiian Ironman World Championship Triathlon. One segment that they had on was Julie Moss from the 1982 Ironman. This is one of the most iconic things in sports. She collapses yards from the finish line and she's crawling, giving every effort that she had in her body to get to that finish line. And I could so relate to everything that she was going through at that point to just push herself despite the pain, despite not having the energy and just willing herself 
forward. And I thought to myself, I'm going to do a triathlon. So I went out and bought a, a used bike. I started training. And basically seven months later, I was standing on the starting line of what we called back then a quarter Ironman. So we're talking a mile swim, a 25-mile bike, and a 6.2-mile run. And this was all from a guy that had been paralyzed, had to relearn to walk, had just started running. I started this race. <laughs> I came in dead last. But what I came to discover is, and only recently so, is that I was the second disabled athlete ever to complete a triathlon. So I made history in triathlon and I made history in the sport of paratriathlon, both of which now are Olympic sports. Uh, back then, they were just kind of a cult uh infatuation with exercise junkies and endurance athletes. So I kept on doing endurance sports back then. I ended up doing many more triathlons. Uh, eventually I moved into just bike racing. Uh, and so exercise became my way to heal myself and show myself that I was still viable as a, a human being after this horrific accident. I still had value and I could still do things like everybody else. But the sad thing was um, this was back before the Americans with Disability Act. So I was afraid to let anybody know that I was disabled entering this race. And it was not because I was ashamed as much as it was. I was afraid that they would see me as a liability and they wouldn't allow me to compete. So I told no one. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell my sister. I think the only person that actually knew was my brother-in-law who helped me get access to uh, the swim swimming pool at Tulsa University so that I could swim because it was wintertime when I started training and there was no outdoor. And eventually I got my lifeguard certificate and or certification in, that year. And I started swimming for the YMCA uh, before I did the triathlon. But that's kind of my claim to fame and, and that's how I healed myself. And I will say that anybody out there struggling with any type of adversity, if they want to do something life changing after suffering any type of physical or mental trauma, consider doing a triathlon. You don't have to be the most fittest of athletes, but going from the start line to the finish line. And when you cross that line, if you ever watch the Hawaiian Ironman, they jump over that line with enthusiasm for a reason because they just changed their life. They're now a triathlete, something that few people in the world are or want to take on. No one will ever take that away from them. And the physical accomplishment that they just did is so amazing that it is life changing. So I'm kind of out there preaching, you know, what worked for me and has worked for so many more. Please give it a try. That's my healing. You mentioned about you are involved with the foundation as well. Yes, yes. Uh, this last year, I ended up looking up and discovered that there was something called USA Triathlon Foundation. <clears throat> I reached out to them and I told them my story. And they basically wrote back saying, hey, we'd love to have you as an ambassador to the sport. Uh, since I only just discovered li literally last year that, you know, I had a place in history in this sport and that I was one of the original pioneers and I'm out telling my story. I'm so ecstatic to be sharing it and encouraging other individuals. I'm actually, we, we actually have uh, an intellectual disability category now. And as a result of that, I'm going to be setting up a, uh, a booth at the Down Syndrome Festival here in Oklahoma City in two weeks time, I'll be representing USA Triathlon. And I've, I'm, I'd like to say I'm friends with a couple of, of, of pioneers in the uh, Down Syndrome uh, realm of triathlon. One uh, is Caleb, and I, I won't share his last name just because I, I haven't talked to, <laughs> to them about it, but he's an amazing young man. And another gentleman is Chris. They both have Down syndrome. Both have made history with respect to the sport. It's so inclusive. Anybody can do it. And these kids are so enthusiastic that 
I want to go down there and get as many kids to join up for triathlon because it'll change their life and it'll change their parents' life. So I did Spartan race last um, November. I saw that. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw you climbing the stairs on on your video. I think so, you had on your on your Instagram. <laughs> I yeah, I never thought I would do Spartan race, but I did, and I came up like top twenty five percent. And then, that's awesome. Yeah, I finished five k and twenty two obstacles. I couldn't do two, but if you can't absolutely do. Uh, you can do 15 barbies. So, oh. <laughs> and and this time I had a surgery in July and I was not allowed to do high impact sports until this past Friday, a few days ago, two days ago. So when doctor said I can do high impact sports again, guess what? I'm going to try to sign up for the Alton <laughs> race again. And then there I have a strategy. I learned some strategic things about I am so incredibly honored to hear your story and then hear your strengths and determination. I just want to mention something that occurred to me. So a few episodes ago, Daniel Hodges, who is blind man who became an attorney. Mm -hmm. I was having an interview and he was telling me, however, he became an attorney the people look at you that you're blind and then all his life that people think you're incompetent and especially when you have when he had a child they were trying to take the child away from him because they thought he was incompetent due to his blindness and also the parent side of it and then i was like after the interview steve i was thinking about this and I'm thinking about the limitation and the biases. Mm -hmm. So regardless of your disability or, you know, single mom, whatever the status is, I think not just the society, but the biases in empower people way too much. So you are blind, you can't do that. Or you're single mom. So you can't do that. Your children will be lack of blah, blah, blah. And I want to get rid of all these biases because it's not just pressure from the society, but it's inside of you. Right. And I'm going to share a story about um, the, one of the sections in my book that I talk about dealing with juvenile offenders where they were very forgotten population. And I started a nonprofit and then was president and founder for 12 years. And I've seen the changes of the students through not just the music, but the empowerment and then building the self-esteem, etc. But one story was one of the teacher went to a school which was really bad and then um, turned around the um, average to really high level and then the principal asked why did you how how did you do that? And she said these are kids with 180 IQs, like they're like a Harvard student. And then the principal said they are locker number. It's that's that's their locker number. And then she didn't know that was a locker number. And this is just a metaphor, Steve. This is an important lesson that we all have the expectation that you have. And I always told all my volunteers. It's not their fault that they cannot do. It's your fault as a teacher or educator or parents or mentor that you don't believe in them because they're criminal. Right. You don't believe in them because they are blind. You don't believe in me because I'm single mom. So my kids wouldn't be able to do these things. And I hate that. So first of all, I think what you have been saying and determining even though biases and then all these doctors saying that you can't walk but you pull yourself no that's not true i'm gonna do this and the triathlon that's so remarkable and dealing with this excruciating pain i can't even imagine that even to try i can do this and that is such a resilience that you have within you and 
kudos to your mom and yourself that you know not so many people can accomplish and now you're giving back to these potential new tri athlete that can compete and then complete and give them something that nobody can take away from regardless of their disability or disadvantage and i think it's just so remarkable steve thank you thank you and you know <laughs> i think because i've seen it come from when i was afraid to do it to now we have all these new groups of people and in categories that can compete on a level that is a, a level playing field because i all my my competition with bike races and with triathlon was all against stable-bodied athletes uh it never stopped me and and it should never stop anybody because i wasn't really worried about the results as much as i was worried about just getting the accomplishment under my belt because that's the way that uh, i could reassure myself that i was doing the right thing and that you know i was on my way back to being a real person versus this person that people would pity or you know think couldn't do something as you said and, and that's really again that's on them not us but i never wore it as a chip on my shoulder and i think that's the difference between people that hold a grudge against society and their biases and those that just go eh, watch this and then they just go do because doing is really where it's at um you know you don't have to get the best result but if you beat your last time that's the best result for you and that's what you need to measure yourself by not the guy standing next to you so in my book i mentioned about you getting jikpo which is japanese word which means you say it and you um do it execute it mm -hmm. but then i think that is for me too slow i would say i changed i, I made up a word it's called hatsan suiko which means when you get an idea, just execute. So instead of telling everybody, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, because in the process of telling people your idea, they are naysayers and they are like, no yes. people that, oh, you can't do that. What are you talking about? But instead of listening to, or giving even a chance to have a public opinion about what you were gonna do, I just do it. I just signed up for the Spartan race and I just said, I just signed up and yeah. never told anybody. Good for you. I just think sometimes those naysayers and then negative opinions can kind of sabotage your passion and then it, you need to prevent that. And then I think uh, human nature is to share and then we are such a social animals that, you know, sharing is important, but at the same time, you have to be careful of potentials and then protecting your desires and the, um, possibilities. And I've learned that in a hard way um, by sharing way too much. So especially when I was running a nonprofit as a leader, um, sometimes it's better not to share with too many people, but just yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. So I really admire you. And then I want to just touch a little bit base of American Disability Act that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And why was it important that it's formed? Well, you know, that was signed into law in 1990, which was the year that I graduated college by, and it was signed in, into law by George Bush Sr. The benefit of that is that it says, look, you can't exclude anybody from any competition, any type of place because of a disability. I mean, it, it's, and it's, we've always known it's wrong. It's like saying, because you're this color, you can't do that. And because you're this size, you can't do that no it it levels it for all people and where this plays out today and it, i saw it come from nothing and before where you know when i started competing there were no disabled heroes on tv i mean you didn't see uh, a paralympic athlete promoting toyota for you know one of the big ones and, and they're a huge promoter of paralympics and the olympic sports and the reason I say that is because I don't want to say that being disabled is in vogue, but I think media and people in general have realized that behind every disabled athlete is an incredible story. I don't care how minute the accident is, the fact that they got over it and they pushed themselves to the point where they wanted to do something 
in front of people physically pushing themselves to their limits, that is probably the most inspiring thing that you can think of. And, and the fact that I came in last in my first race ever, the dead last, I was still a winner, even though I came in last place. And I, I think if you find any disabled athlete or any person that comes in last in a race, they're going to have a better story than the guy that says, I trained 20 hours a day, 20 days a week. You know, I mean, the, the hardcore athlete, this guy's going to say, look, I worked it in between work and taking kids to the park and cooking meals. And, and but I still found the time to complete a marathon. That's the human condition. That's the story that matters most because that's your life and that's my life. We're not the the athlete that's dedicated to a full-time job of training. God, who would love that, right? I, I would take it in a moment's notice. But it's the other stories that I, I think aren't being told enough because those are the ones that we relate to and, and you know, they're just now starting to do it. So, Well, thank you so much for explaining that. I never knew about American Disability Act had such an impact and I didn't know which year. And then I didn't know why the Power Olympic is formed, Toyota commercial, I had no idea. And then those are the stories that when you are able, you never learn. And right. for you to come to my show and really share a whole story of what had happened and the tools that you um, used to overcome and then learning about this systematic change that all the politicians and then game changers implemented in our history that apparently changed you know, the forever for the ability of the disability. I think it's just so incredible. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. And just so you know, I, again, I, I studied your show and, and looked at your Instagram and, and you are a dynamo <laughs> of a person. You're doing so much. You're a journalist. You've written a book. You're an actress. You've got your podcast. I mean, you've got a lot of irons in the fire and you're a single mom. Nobody appreciates that position more than me as the son of a single mom. It's an incredible job you're doing. It's an important job you're doing. And from all accounts, from what I see, and, and I don't have, you know, access to everything, but I, I think you're doing a great job and, you know, keep doing what you're doing. You're going to put two great kids out in the world. Thank you so much. That means the world to me, Steve. You're so kind. Thank you. One of my friends, Scorpio from Jamaica is saying good evening, Julie and Steve. Oh, thank you. Hello. <laughs> Scorpio was one of my guests from Jamaica. So it's been wonderful to be able to connect um, all these thoughts from all over the world as well. So Steve, yes. my last question for you is mm -hmm. a gift that came from the adversity. So can you please share with our audience what was the gift that came from my, yeah. my gift, the gift that I got, one was, you know, being part of triathlon history. But the bigger part of that is that now I get to use my story to inspire other people. That's the gift. It, it's made me, and, and I, I look for, no personal notoriety as much as I look to share my story so that it can uplift two people and two people can uplift two more people. Then you get four and four makes 16, 32, 64, 128. It's just infectious, uh, more so than implanting negativity. It's all about being positive, finding the good in things. And, and that's, you know, <laughs> coming from such a tragic accident that should have taken my life in other situations that that should have taken my life i'm a very thankful and happy individual and i i just try not to see negativity um but i i want my share to, my story to impact people and that's my gift so thank you so much before you go i want you to share some advice to somebody who might be going through the same adversity that you went through, what is your biggest advice? It revolves around pain. And as bad as pain can be, pain is always temporary. I mean, it's gonna be up and down. It's never gonna be at its worst all the time, all day, all week, all month, all year. It's, it's just not. And I know that from experience. 
don't take it don't take it out on people around you but let them know that you're in pain because it will affect your relationship with other individuals you'll snap on your worst days then you'll apologize but if they know what you're going through and they have any compassion whatsoever they'll understand i know you need your space but i'm here for you and you'll say i need my space and thank you for being there for me because that's what really matters if you don't have people around you that love and care about you uh you know it would be that much more difficult but pain's temporary you can push through it and then lastly i would say when it comes to new challenges in life <clears throat> don't say i can't say i'll try you never know what doors you're going to open and what you're going to be able to accomplish and do for yourself and your life going forward Thank you so much for this conversation, Steve. I really appreciate you um, for sharing and inspiring me and inspiring other people. And you're such a gift. And thank you so much for surviving. And thank you so much for motivating yourself and other people. And I really hope that you continue to do so. Thank you, Jerry. I look forward to staying in touch and sharing good things back and forth. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to A Gift From Adversity. I have more exciting guests coming from all over the world. And I'm so grateful that this platform has been reaching out to even one person out there. And I will look forward to more conversation. Thank you very much.